I would say let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, but um, I want to start in Matthew 25. So turn to Matthew 20, really 24. We'll get to Revelation chapter 20 in a moment. So we're going to be, and as I said, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 in a moment. Uh, And I will give just a brief, of course, a very brief recap um, on chapter 20 as a whole. Uh, Chapter 20, of course, is the Millennium Passage. All of it is one whole vision. And as we've been looking through it, that vision is really broken down into three main parts. It's characterized by what happens at the beginning of it. It's characterized by what happens during it. And it's characterized by what happens at the end of it. And however you uh, want to understand the millennium, whether it's, it's something that's going to happen in the future, whether it's a golden age for the church, whether it's happening now, we're in the millennium now, it is still characterized by what happened at the beginning of it, what's happening during the, the uh, occurrence of it, and what will happen at the end of it. And what happens at the beginning, of course, is the binding of Satan. Satan is bound, so he's no longer able to deceive the nations. What's happening now is that uh, the the saints are reigning and ruling with Christ. And then what happens at the end of it? Jesus will return, Satan will be released, and he will gather the, the wicked forces together to come against the people of God, and he will be soundly defeated and cast into the lake of fire. And the passage we're going to look at tonight is then the result of what happens. So while it's still part of the same vision, it's after the thousand years are done. Again, however you want to understand the thousand years, verses 11 through 15 occur after the thousand years are complete. Because once Satan and his forces have been defeated, you're going to get this final great white throne judgment in which Jesus comes, he sits on his throne, and judgment is pronounced, and All those who are judged are cast into the lake of fire, and then the next thing will be what you see in chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So this idea of final judgment and the return of Christ, it is something that the church has been teaching and hoping and expecting and waiting for for nearly 2,000 years. So you could say, well... When is Jesus going to return? Well, I can't tell you when because no one knows the day or the hour. But we know that he's coming. But it's interesting because in Peter's second letter, you don't need to turn there, but in Peter's second letter in chapter 3, Peter had to deal with this. He had to deal with people asking him, where's Jesus? Why hasn't he returned yet? Now, Peter, by all accounts, by church tradition and by church history, was executed or martyred somewhere during Nero's reign, which would have been in the middle 60s A.D. So he's writing his second letter. It's very short, to the, very close to the time of his, of his death. So he's in the 60s A.D. This is 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. So just 30 short years after the death of Jesus, you had mockers, you had scoffers saying, where's the coming of the Lord? Where's the promised return? And that's what you see in uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, starting in verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And we're in the last days still. Walking according to their own lusts and saying, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter had to deal with scoffers. And guess what? We have to deal with scoffers too. Because if it was true in the middle 60s AD, it's that much more true 2,000 years later. In 2022, people are out there, scoffers. Where's your Jesus? He's supposed to be coming. Your Bible says he's coming soon. How how soon is soon? 2,000 years. That doesn't seem very soon. Of course, then Peter will say later on that, well, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. So don't measure time. Don't, don't hold God to the way we measure time. God sees time very differently than we do. So this idea of the coming of the Lord, when is it? When, how long do we have to wait? Is it actually going to come? Well, that's why I had you turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at a little bit of this, and we might bounce around to some other passages too. But Matthew 24 is Jesus' own words concerning his return. Now this is just like we've been looking in the Gospel of John. This is during Passion Week. This is during Jesus. He's, he's going, he, I think the next thing in chapter 26 is the Last Supper. So he's getting ready to be executed. And he's been in the temple teaching. And as they leave the temple... The disciples are like, Lord, look at what lovely stones the temple has. Look at this wonderful temple that has been built. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 24, verse 2, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, that's truly, truly, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So when the disciples are marveling at the wonder of the temple, Jesus says this temple is going to be destroyed. Of course, then the next question is, well, the disciples would have is, what do you think their next question would be? When is that going to (laughs) happen? Can you tell us when that's going to happen? Because this temple is a big, massive temple. You're you're saying it's going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? Also, while you're at it, can you tell us what the sign of your coming is in the end of the age as well? (laughs) So they're trying to, you know, they're like... You know, you're allowed one question. Okay, I've got one question in three parts. When's the temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs of the age? And what's, when are you going to return? So then Jesus begins, and from Matthew 25, 24 through 25, Jesus answers these questions. And he tells them first, in verses 4 through 14, essentially what is going to mark this period that we're in. This period between his, his first advent and his second advent. It's going to be a period that is marked with wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, there will be pestilences, earthquakes. And he says all these, in verse 8, are the beginning of sorrows. And if you look at just the history, <laughs> history since this time, it has been marked with what? Wars, rumors of wars, kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, nation rising against nation, pestilence, famines, earthquakes, and and whatnot. And Jesus says, look, this is just the beginning of sorrows. This is just the beginning of sorrows. How else is this age uh, characterized? Well, he says, well, you're going to be delivered up to tribulation. You're going to be hated. And uh, many will be offended by you. Then people will betray one another. There will be false prophets rising up, and lawlessness will abound. Love will grow cold. 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel, the kingdom preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So this period of time is marked by all kinds of political, geopolitical activity, um, seismic activity, disease, death, famine, uh, apostasy, betrayal, love growing cold, false prophets. In all that time, the gospel is going forth. And when it's reached to all nations, then the end will come. And then Jesus then talks about, after that, there'll be a great tribulation. And he says, this is the beginning of birth pangs, if I'm not mistaken. This is the beginning of birth pangs. So if women, when you've, when you've been pregnant with your children, and you know when you know, you've got the nine months pregnancy, but right before the delivery, right, you start feeling those birth pangs. You start feeling the labor pains. You're like, it's coming soon, right? You know, it's, <laughs> it may not be coming right this second, but it's coming soon. It's coming soon, so you get this great tribulation at the end. And this has sort of a, what some will say, a near and a far fulfillment uh, in which there's a sense in which this great tribulation could be speaking uh, of the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70, but that, in a sense, could be a prefiguring of a greater tribulation that will come at the end of the age. And when that tribulation comes, because you're going to see this, this abomination of desolation, uh, desecrating the temple, that's when you need to flee, and uh, so on and so forth. And then you're going to see it, uh, and he says, unless those days are shortened, verse 22, no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And in verse 23, you're going to see false Christs, people pretending to be messiahs. If anyone says to you, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. And then uh, so on and so forth. And then after the period of that great tribulation, you're going to see then immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So after the great tribulation, then... Jesus returns. You see the sign in heaven. He comes down, descending in the clouds as he ascended when he left in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he gathers his elect. You call that the rapture, if you will. He raptures his elect from the four winds of the earth. So he's told them that this period will be marked by great turmoil. There will be a great tribulation at the end. And then Jesus will return. And then he gives a couple of parables. One is the fig tree. You, you know, in other words, when you see the buds starting to bloom on the branches, you know that it's almost there. It's very near. And he goes on and says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So God's word is true. Jesus is speaking true words here. But he says, No one's going to know the day or the hour. So while you can kind of see the signs of the time, no one is going to know the exact day or hour that Jesus will return. He, except for Harold Camping, right, who, who thought he knew it like two or three times, right? Four times, okay. Um, 
No one knows the day or the hour, but you say you might know the month or the year, right? Um, no, no one knows the day or the hour of the return of Christ. And he says it's going to be like in the days of Noah, right? And what happened in the days of Noah? Well, God told Noah to build an ark, right? So there's Noah building an ark. And his neighbors are probably saying, Noah, what are you doing? Well, I'm building an ark. It's like, well, what's that? It's, well, it's a big boat. Well, why are you being, building a big boat? Because it's going to rain. And they're like, what's rain? <laughs> what do you mean rain? Noah, you're crazy. And they go off and they just do whatever they want. And then, of course, the rains come. Noah's in the boat. And then the people that were like, what's rain? Are like, Noah, can you bring us in? It's like, nope, sorry. The door's been sealed. You had your chance. But the point is, is that no one knows the day. And while that's happening, people are just going to be living their lives. It's going to come like a thief in the night which is then why Jesus then gives these parables about preparedness. You need to be prepared. You need to be a faithful servant who waits for his master. You've got the, the parable of the, uh, the virgins and the parable of the talents. And now the part I really want to get to here is after all of this, so we, we were left before these parables, we were left with the return of Christ. And then what happens in chapter 25, verse 31 then you see when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats will be on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least, sorry, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say also to those on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, the lake of fire. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus talks about his return. He tells the disciples, of course, that there will be signs that will sort of indicate the period of time we're in. Then there will be a great tribulation. Then he will return. And then there will be the judgment. And, and as Jesus says this, these are, again, the words of his own mouth. Jesus promised this would happen. And remember what he said in 25 verse 30, or 24 verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will pass away. Jesus, his words are sure. God's words 
are sure. So Jesus promised that he would return. He promised that he would return. Now flip over to Philippians. I like saying it that way. Flip to Philippians. Chapter 3. Now this is not so much a passage that speaks directly to the return of Christ, but it does speak to it. And in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, starting in verse 17, Paul is warning the Philippians there to avoid those, as he calls them earlier in the chapter, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the, the mutilation, those who seek to rob them of their joy in Christ. But he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, follow people who follow Christ and follow their following. Verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. So now Paul is heartbroken that these people are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And how, how do they walk? Well, their end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Then in verse 20, he says, But us, for, our, for us, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, as I said, this is not a passage that deals directly with the return of Christ or eschatology, but it does have an eschatology to it. Because he says, those who are enemies of the cross are doomed for destruction. Their end is destruction. And, and, and they, they demonstrate that because their God is their, be- their belly. They worship their appetites. They worship their, their affections. They, they worship and glory in their own shame. So Paul says those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, their, their uh, doom is certain. Their end is destruction. The goal of their path will lead to destruction. But us, who are not setting their minds on earthly things, we have a citizenship that is not here in this world. We have a citizenship in heaven, right? That's why we can, you can call ourselves, you know, Christians are in a sense like, Legal resident aliens on earth, right? <laughs> this is not our home. Doesn't matter if you're a U.S. citizen. Really, your citizenship is in heaven. Doesn't matter if you're Canadian, British, German, Zimbabwean, or whatever you want to pick. Pick a country. You may have an earthly citizenship there, but as a Christian, your citizenship is now in heaven where Christ is. And because of that, we don't focus on the things of this world. We, we, we don't try to chase after the things of this world. And since our citizenship is in heaven, then we know that the Lord will return. That's why he says in verse 20, we also eagerly wait for the Savior. We wait for our King to come. And he's going to then transform our bodies. So he talks about the glorification of the body here. He will transform our lowly bodies, our fleshly bodies, to be spiritual bodies like he has. So again, here Paul talks about this, the the destruction of the wicked and the return of Christ. 
Now, he also talks about it much more clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's a hard thing to say when you've got a fat lip. 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> now, again, this, the context here is the Thessalonians, they were... They were, esch- they were eschatologically minded. Okay? They, were, they were focused on the return of Christ, right? to the point that some of them in the church were sort of abandoning worldly labor and just waiting for Christ to return. And Paul has to tell us, like, look, if someone's not going to work, he shouldn't eat. You need, you know, Christ will come when he comes. Be about your business. Okay? Don't sit there and wait for the rapture. Okay? Be about your business. But some of them were worried because they all had the expectant hope that Christ was coming soon. Paul had the expectant hope that Christ was coming soon. And we all have the expectant hope that Christ is going to return soon. But they were worried because they thought that people who were dying were going to miss out on the return of Christ. So Paul writes to them in chapter 4, starting in verse 13, to comfort them, to assure them. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, right? This is Paul instructing people now. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Okay, that you, you, don't get, you can't get much more certain than that. When Paul says, this we bring to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So far from missing out on the day of the Lord, the dead in Christ are going to be moved to the head of the line. They're going to jump to the head of the line. They're going to be out there running to meet Christ first. And then we're going to follow after them. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we shall always be with the Lord. But then in, verse, in chapter 5, he goes on to talk about the day of the Lord. But it says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. In other words, they knew this stuff. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That's what Jesus said. You don't know when the Christ is going to return. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, like in the days of Noah, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So Paul here also talks about the certainty of the return of the Lord. Turn to 1 John. 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, John's writing to his readers, and he says, And now, little children, abide in him, that is Christ. And when he appears, so Christ will return, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of the return of Christ, this is not a hope of, like, I hope the Huskers win next week. Okay? This is the hope that, is, that will be fulfilled. It is a hope of, of certainty. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, John here is talking about the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, we're going to see him like he is. And we will be like him. Okay, so now we can turn to Revelation chapter 20. I just wanted to look at some of those passages because the return of Christ and final judgment is not just reserved to the book of Revelation chapter 20. It is something that has been, and I could have looked at a bunch of Old Testament passages too, but the thing is is that Jesus talked about it, the apostles talked about it, and we're seeing this prophesied here and revealed to us here in the book of Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So I will finally now read our verses for tonight. So John continues, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and we need to be prepared. That's essentially what this passage is teaching us here. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and we need to be prepared. Now, if you have your handout, I've got it broken down into three parts today, three points. First, we're going to look at verse 11, the one upon the throne. Again, John sees, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So after Satan's rebellion is crushed that we saw last time in verses 7 through 10, John now sees a new part of this same vision. Remember, chapter 20 is one unit, if you will. One vision is the seventh cycle of visions. And John sees certain things here. He saw what happens at the beginning of the thousand years, what's happening during the thousand years, what happens near the end of the thousand years, and now he sees the final judgment. And what does he see? Well, John sees a throne. But not just a throne. He sees a white throne. But not just a white throne. He sees a great white throne. So this is a very spectacular throne. The white speaks to the holiness and purity that is associated with the throne. Also, great wisdom that is associated with the throne. And the fact that it is great signifies that this is not some dingy old throne. 
This is not just some run-of-the-mill throne. This is the throne of Christ as He comes to judge the living and the dead. And upon that throne, He sees Him who sat on it. Now, it seems vague, right? You know, who's the Him? Well, I I think it's Christ because we saw that in Matthew 25. He says that Christ will return and sit upon His throne and judge the sheep and the goats. Now, the reason why there might be some some uh, confusion is because in verse 12 you see, and I saw the dead small and great standing before God. But you might have a footnote if you have New King James. and It says there also it could be the throne. The critical text and the majority text have the throne there. So if you have an ESV it to say the throne. So there's a textual issue whether it's standing before God or standing before the throne. John talks about this, or Jesus talks about this in John 5, how all authority has been given, that judgment has been given to him. So Jesus is the one here sitting on the throne. The Lord Jesus Christ is here on the throne, and John sees that. So no more is this Jesus meek and mild that we saw in the Gospels, right? The humble Jesus, the Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, the Jesus who who, uh, ate with sinners and tax collectors. And it's not even Jesus, the conquering king, anymore. He's already done that. This is Jesus now, the judge of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead. And we see here at the glorious presence of Jesus, John sees the earth and the heavens flee from him. The earth and the heavens flee from him. This is the old heavens and the earth, the one that was created way back in Genesis 1. The old heavens and the earth are, are, are fleeing away from Jesus. The one who spoke the world into existence, now that world is fleeing from him. And we've seen this in other portions of Scripture. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 4, I believe, talks about this. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. Make sure I get that right. This is the second seal. Another horse, a fiery red, went out, and it was granted uh, to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. No, I think that's not the one I wanted. What am I thinking? Oh, I meant 14. Sorry. Verse 14 of chapter 6. The sixth seal. That makes more sense. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. When the sixth seal is open, the old heavens and the old earth are rolled up and taken away. Um, we see this again in chapter 16, verse 20. Chapter 16, verse 20. This is the seventh bowl being poured out. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Again, the the creation is fleeing from the one who sits upon the throne. And Peter, we looked at, well, I read from Peter, but Peter really talks about this when he talks about it in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. In verse 10, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
what manner of persons ought you to be? So Peter is bringing an exhortation here. It's like, since this world is going to be passing away, what kind of people do you need to be? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So when Jesus comes at his return, the old heavens and the old earth will be done away with. The old order of things will be done away with. There will be no place found for them. Why? Because this age is done. This age has come to an end. And the next thing on the slate is for the new heavens and the new earth to come on. And for the new heavens and the new earth to come on, the old heavens and the old earth have to be done away with. Now there's debate as whether if it's completely destroyed and recreated or if it's sort of renovated, that language is talked about. You get both kinds of language. But the point is, is that the old order is done. When Christ is sitting on his throne ready to judge, all the things that, that, that typify and, and, and talk about this old order are done away with. And it's a preparation for the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the one upon the throne. Now Jesus sees, or sorry, John sees the dead coming before him and books are open in verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So now note here that John sees all the dead, small and great, whether you are a great man, a poor man, a king or a peasant, a prince or a slave, male, female, Greek, Jew, doesn't matter. He sees all the dead. They're all brought before the throne. And now books are opened. Books are opened. Now, the fact that all the dead, small and great, means that no one escapes God's justice. No one skips his court date. No one can, can bribe the judge here. No one can go to their alderman or congressman and, and try to get out of this jury duty thing here. You are going to appear at this court date. Many passages talk about this. Daniel 12, verse 2, talks about how the, the final judgment comes and the, and the dead will be brought before and, and there will be this great division, just like Jesus talks about it. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 5 when he says there will come a time when all the dead will come out of their graves and those who go to, will be, uh, go to the resurrection of destruction, some will go to the resurrection of the righteous. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5 talk about how we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Believers, unbelievers, dead, small and great, no one escapes this day, no one misses this court date as these Dead are now coming before the throne, and John then sees a bunch of books open. That word there for books, biblia, can mean book or scroll. Either way, this is a, this is a record. These are all the, all, the, all the books here, are all the records of all of our deeds. Everything. Every word, every thought, every, every uh, action, everything that we've ever thought or done is recorded in these books. 
And all of it will be laid bare before the throne. I've heard some people say that it's like you're, when your time comes up before the throne, there'll be a big old video screen and you're going to see everything that you've done in your life. Now, most of us are fairly private people, you know, and we don't like to air our dirty laundry. You know, if, if I go up to somebody and I say, hey, how are you doing? Most, most often I'll hear, oh, I'm doing fine. You know, and, you know, and maybe there's more going on underneath that. We don't know. Some of us are very tight-lipped. But everything is going to be revealed at this judgment. Everything. Those books are meticulously kept. Everything, every record of every care. Jesus says in the gospel, he says, you've got to be careful for every careless word that you speak. Because that will come before the judgment. Every care- How many people here have spoken a careless word? <laughs> right? I spoke a few careless words when I did a face plant out in the street last night. Those are going to come before the, the throne of judgment here. All of these books will be cord- recorded. I mean, do you want to stand there before God's throne clothed in your works? How many people are going to be able to go up to God's throne and be proud of what they've done? To bring their body of work before the great white throne and say, here you go, God, have at it. Everything will be brought before the throne. And note, too, that judgment, while salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, right? Judgment is always, always, always based on works. Based on works. Psalm 62, verse 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Or Jeremiah 17.10. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And Romans 2.16 talks about this too, how we are judged based on our works. That's a scary thought. That is a frightening thought. Because if I'm going to go before the Lord naked with my own works, and I'm going to be like, here you go, you know, you know, I'm going to be offering my filthy rag works before the Lord, he's, I'm going to go into the lake of fire. And that's, that's the case of everyone who comes before this great white throne clothed in their own righteousness. If you think you can earn your way to heaven, have at it. Have at it. If you think you can earn your way to heaven, if you think you can do enough good works, if you think you can make your good outweigh your bad, go for it. Bring it before the throne and see what happens. Because everyone is judged according to what is written in the books. And every, think about that too, because every injustice that has escaped human justice in this world will come before the throne of God. Right? I mean, think of all the injustices we see in this world and how, how wicked people get away with things, right? The book of Ecclesiastes talks about this all the time, how, you know, one of the things that the teacher says is vanity under the sun is that the wicked get away with things, right? The righteous suffer, the wicked prosper. This too is vanity. All is vanity, right? Things happen in this world and people escape human justice, 
But they're not going to escape God's justice because everything they've done is recorded in these books. We also see that implied here by the idea of books is that there's degrees of punishment in hell. Just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there's degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus says to uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon, woe to you. Right? If you had believed the if, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the works that you've seen, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So it's going to be worse for you because you've seen these works and you have not believed. So there's there's a good deal to imply here that there is a degree of punishment in hell. I mean, every sin deserves hell. Right? The, the, from the smallest white lie to the most heinous sin, all deserves hell but there might be degrees of punishment in hell. But then after these books are opened, John sees another book open beside those. And this is the book of life. This is the heavenly roster. This is the roll call of heavenly citizenship. And it's a book that we have seen before in Revelation. In uh, chapter 3, verse 15... I believe this is uh, the letter to Laodicea. I have the, I think that's the wrong verse again. I think it meant to be three verse five. Sorry, to Sardis, the dead church. And as as is the case with all these letters, right? Jesus is introduced, and then he commends them for what they've done well. He rebukes them for what, they've, what they're not doing well, and he gives the warnings, and then he gives a promise to the overcomer, and in verse 5 he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot, his name, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So the overcomer, and that's not just for Sardis, that's anyone who's an overcomer. For the one who perseveres, the one who overcomes, his name will not be blotted out of the book of life. And Jesus will confess that person before the Father. Jesus will speak for that person before the Father. We see the book of life again in chapter 13. When the beast is introduced, and we learn in chapter 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth, and in the book of Revelation, earth dwellers are the wicked. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast. And these are people whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 17 verse 8 also talks about the book of life. Again, talking about the woman, the harlot, and the beast. In chapter 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And then later on in chapter 21, we see it again. So again, the book of life contains the names of those who are the overcomers, those whom the Holy Spirit preserves through their, their, their pilgrim journey on this earth, those whose names are not written in the book of life are those who are wicked, who are evil, 
who, who are earth dwellers from the book of Revelation's point of view. And this is the book in which are recorded all of those whom God chose to be in Christ from before the foundation of the earth. Our names were written in this book before we were born. It's not like we're living our lives and God looks down and says, oh, he's doing well, I'm going to put his name in the book of life. No, our, book, our names are in that book of life before we were born, before the world was created. God decided and elected way back in eternity past, he said, I'm going to give a people to my son. These are the elect. These are the people whose names will be in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. John makes clear in verse 13 that all the dead, I mean all the dead, it's, you know, the sea gives up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who are in them. And all of them were judged according to their works. Again, there's no place where God's hand of justice will not reach to grab you. Even in the deepest depths of the sea, God's going to drag you out and bring you before his throne. In, in the depths of death in Hades, God will drag you out and bring you before his throne to judge you. And the judgment we see here is in verses 14 and 15, the lake of fire. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So now we see here death in Hades. Death is capitalized. It's almost as if death is personified here. Right? We see death um, in the, he's the fourth seal, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He's the one on the, on the pale horse, the rider on the pale horse. Death comes out, and it says Hades follows after him. Hades is the grave, the underworld. So wherever death is going, Hades is just right behind them, gobbling up all the souls that, that death is destroying. But death here is personified, and then we see that Jesus now takes death itself and the grave in Hades and casts them into the lake of fire. They are the last to be cast into the lake of fire, and no more will they torment and afflict humanity any longer. Death has no power anymore. Death has been conquered, and this is the final consummation of that victory over death that Jesus uh, secured on the cross. Death has been a constant reminder of sin ever since the beginning. Right? When Adam sinned in the garden, he died. And then you see death. And he died, and he died, and he died. All those genealogies. And he died, and he died, and he died. Death has been a constant reminder of the fall, of sin, of our hopeless state, of the fact that we are doomed for destruction unless God does something. And now death has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. The purpose of death in Hades is complete. Because where we're going after this, the new heavens and the new earth, guess what? No more death. No more death, no more disease, no more wickedness, no more sin. The purpose is done. There will be no more death going forward. I just love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That's why I can't wait to get there in Sunday school. But 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about death. In verse 26, 
He calls death the last enemy that will be destroyed. So when Christ comes, uh, we see then, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts all, an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And then just bounce over to verse 50. And now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corrupt incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is destroyed. Death is cast into the lake of fire. Then John goes on to explain how the lake of fire is the second death. Right? He says, then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now we talked about the second death before when we looked at the, the, in the millennium passages when it was compared to the first resurrection. The second death is not your physical death. This is a spiritual, eternal, conscious torment in the lake of fire. You are raised, the dead are raised, the wicked are raised in bodies that can endure eternal, conscious torment. The lake of fire is symbolic in a way, but it's so much more than just a symbol. Because it's talking about hell is real. Hell is real. When Jesus describes hell, he, he refers to a, a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom called Gehenna. And he says, there in that massive, nasty, ugly garbage dump, he says the fire is not quenched because it's just fires are burning all the time. And he says the worm will not cease to be fed. So this, 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 it's a picture of what hell is like. And here, hell is, like, is described as a lake of fire. If you want to say it's literal, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if you want to say it's a literal lake of fire that burns forever. Or if you want to say it's symbolic of what it is. But even if it's a symbol, it's going to be much worse than what the symbol is. Okay, don't think of saying, well, it's symbolic means that it's not bad. It's going to be much worse than that. Okay, everyone here, I'm sure, has burned themselves at some point in their lives. And you're like, that hurts. That hurts a lot when I burn myself. Now imagine that all over yourself forever. Right? I mean, we, we know in the history of the church, right, many martyrs have given their lives and were burned at the stake. Right? Nero is said to have taken Christians and used them to light his, his parties in his garden. Right? And the, and the thing is, burn, you know, I mean, if I had a list of the number one way I do not want to die, burning. Okay? That would be my, my number one way not to die. Okay? I would, I would take anything else other than being burned alive. But even at that, that's going to end after a while, right? You know, you're, all your nerves are burned out, and you've probably passed out from the pain after a while. But think about it forever and ever and ever 
and ever. And the point here is that hell is real. Hell is real. There's, there is no annihilation. There is no universalism. There's no like purgatory where you, you go to the hot place for a while until all your sins are purged, and then you get to go into heaven. No, if you're in the lake of fire, that is it. That is your destruction. That is your end, as Paul said in Philippians 3. Their end is destruction. Not annihilation, but eternal conscious torment. And just to tie this in from the sermon this morning, that's why the urgency to preach the gospel. Right? It's not, come, you know, if you don't come to Jesus, well, your life is not going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. It's, if you don't come to Jesus, this is your end. The lake of fire is your end if you don't come to Jesus. And, and you're not cast into the lake of fire because you don't believe in Jesus. You're cast into the lake of fire because of what's written in the books. Believing in Jesus is your way to get out of what's written in the books. Right? Everyone who finds himself in the lake of fire will be there based on works. Again, like I said earlier, if you think you can come to God and say, I'm going to bring my works to you, here you go, have at it. Guess what? Lake of fire is your end. But, if your name is in the book, not the books, but if your name is in the book, the book of life, then you're spared from the judgment of the lake of fire. And that your name is written in the book of life with the ink that is the blood of Christ. The ink that is the blood of Christ has written your name. Christ says, I've died for you, and your name has been inscribed in my book. If you are a believer in Christ, your name has been in that book since before the foundation of the world, inscribed in the blood of Christ, who is the lamb slain before time. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. The only way to get out of hell, the only way to avoid the lake of fire, is to place your faith and trust in Christ. Again, this is why it's so urgent, so fervent, that we need to preach this message. We don't want to be the church that talks about how you come to Jesus and your life will go well. We don't want to be the church that gives you five tips for a happy marriage or seven ways to become wealthy or 12 ways to raise your children well. These are all good things, but we want to be the church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners from the lake of fire. Judgment is real. It is coming. Christ will return. Don't let the scoffers throw you off. Let them scoff. Let them scoff, because their end is coming. And if they scoff, tell them, look, Jesus is coming, and there's a way to avoid the lake of fire, and that is to place your faith and trust in him, to confess your sins, to repent of your sins, to come to him in faith. He will come to, re- to judge the living and the dead. You can bank on it, because Jesus said it, the Bible says it, the apostles said it, and Revelation predicts it. So we need to be prepared. Well, that's all I have for tonight. Uh, Just a note, uh, the normal next time we would be meeting would be October 2nd, but I will not be here. So the next time we will meet will be on October 16th. October 16th. And I know there's a number of people that are not here that don't go to our church 
I think Ernie and, and Leota. So if anyone knows them and can and sees them regularly, if you can tell them that we will not be meeting on October 2nd. Um, we will meet again on October 16th, Lord willing, of course. In a way, it would be kind of interesting if we finish Revelation and then the Lord returns. <laughs> then I could be at the head of the line saying, see, I told you, it's all true. <laughs> uh, but no, we'll look at uh, the first eight verses. My plan is at least the first eight verses of chapter 21. This is the good stuff now, all right? Chapters 21 and 22, that, that's, this, is the, this is the best part of the book of Revelation. Right, because we're now out of a lot of this, uh, these cycles of judgment and bad things happening and, and, and all this, and now we're going to see what the age to come is going to be like. This is our hope. This is, what we, this is what our faith is placed in. This is what our hope looks forward to. This is what the writer of Hebrews says is the substance of our faith, is the assurance of our hope, is the age to come in which we will be with Jesus forever, personally with Him, communing with our Lord and Savior. That's a day to look forward to.